delve into plant stories. The modern, the old, and the crazy in between. of luscious trees and you might be wondering do they produce any flowers or seeds they don't they actually reproduce through spores that brings us into today's topic ferns ferns are pretty amazing they do reproduce through spores some of them have a couple different ways of reproducing as well like um they do have root systems, so some of them can kind of reproduce that way. There's, But the majority of them reproduce through spores. Uh, there are about 11,000 species of ferns that we wow. know of in the world, although it's estimated sometimes to be more. The greatest species diversity exists in the tropical and subtropical regions of kind of like southern Mexico to northernish South America. Um, in North American regions, ferns tend to be more terrestrial, but there are a lot of ferns that are also epiphytes, similar to what we talked about with air plants, where they sit on top of other types of trees or vegetation. So terrestrial meaning they have roots. Yes, in the ground. And then epiphytes meaning they attach to things. Exactly. Okay, I'm learning. Yeah. So, um... The first ferns are said to be about 360 million years old. Wowza. Yeah, and they aren't necessarily, I mean, they're related to the ferns that we have today, but they're not necessarily exactly the same. Um, from the, They're from like the middle of the Devonian era. And most of the ferns we see today are more from like the late Cretaceous era. So like 40 to 50 million years ago. Yeah, ferns definitely give a visual of Jurassic Park. Yeah, that's and I would idea. say that's accurate. They are definitely kind of from, it's our like piece from that time, you know. Um, they appeared before the first flowering plants evolved and they don't really flower. Um, and early fossil records show that pretty much only large fern trees and cyad palms were like the plants for millions of years. Um, and they actually accumulated such a thickness that they were deposited into the earth in deep layers and then combined with the earth's heat, that's how we now have natural gas, coal, um, and a bunch of other deposits that we use in our everyday life today. Well, thank you, ferns. Thank you, ferns. Ah. China is home to at least 2,000 fern species, which is kind of the most. Um, with the island of New Guinea, actually, the, just the island, hosting a similar number. Oh, <laughs> Which is kind of insane when you think about it. Uh, but, like, North America has around 440. There's a couple other places that kind of have similar. Um, and then Mexico has the most diverse fern populations in one area with about 18% of the species there being found nowhere else on earth. Um, and ferns exist on all continents except Antarctica. Always Antarctica. I know. Um, 
Interestingly enough, ferns had a similar craze to orchids in Victorian times. Um, this caused many of them to be stripped from their native lands. We did lose some. Um, some people even organized like fern hunting parties where you would go out with an identification book and look for ferns and then dig them up out of the ground and bring them home. And most of them probably didn't survive. Most of them probably did not. Um, and ferns were marketed as being only appealing to intelligent people. Oh, that's smart. <laughs> <laughs> only intelligent people like this plant. <laughs> it's a good way to upsell. Orchids are for babies. <laughs> yeah. Um, and some, some ferns can self-fertilize. So we talked about the spores. Um, some of them can also just self-fertilize to reproduce. Uh, probably some more popular or notorious, I guess, ferns uh, is bracken. And bracken is a poisonous fern that quickly takes over large areas. It is known to be a pest in many places. Uh, often ends up in like large fields. And then, you know, if you bring like cows or something there to pasture, the bracken is poisonous and will kill all your animals. Oh my goodness. So you definitely want to be able to identify that. Yeah. Um, but then there are other ones that are like good ones. So the mosquito fern is known to harbor a blue algae that helps give extra nitrogen to other plants and has become very invaluable in uh, the growing of rice paddies. Do they have anything related to mosquitoes? Um, I think it has something to do with their size and also the fact that they uh, populate very soggy areas. Mm, gotcha. So you think rice paddies, lots of water. Yeah. Um, the fer These ferns like that kind of area. I was thinking maybe they like kill mosquitoes. <laughs> it's too hopeful. <laughs> You're like, yes, mosquito killing fern. Nice. And nitrogen. Perfect. Yeah. But if you're looking for kind of a an interesting epithetic fern that actually does exist in North America, uh, you probably would be interested in the resurrection fern. That's a cool name. Yeah. Well, it has this name because they have the ability to look dry to the point of, like, brittle death. Um that disappears into lush green as long as it gets put in water. So you can find them sometimes to be like sold as small balls of moss that will just like, re that they'll like claim will resurrect once you put it in water and it will. Um, so they can lose up to 97% of their water content and still live in serious periods of drought. Typically, their best survival rate is at like 75% water content. But by contrast, most other plants only need to lose 10%. Wow. Yeah, that's a big difference. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking, oh, maybe the other plants are like 50. No, uh, like 10%. Up to almost all of everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is native to the U.S., so to like the lower to central areas and down kind of into South American regions. Um, 
and you can see the fern's reproductive story, which is where they keep the spores on the underside of the leaf. So that's kind of one of the ways you can identify it. It's like this very ferny thing that grows on trees, and when you kind of lift it up, you'll see those sperms on the backside. Um, the plant can easily be located to another tree or something, but it does need an anchor to survive for long periods of time. Commercially, it's sold as like Rose of Jericho or the dinosaur plant and also spike fern moss. It's known as all those names? Yes. Oh. Um, what's your favorite? What's my favorite name? Yeah. Rose of Jericho, I think. I don't know. I like the dinosaur. <laughs> it sounds pretty that way. Pretty. I mean, not, not that it isn't pretty, but like it sounds pretty that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is actually a plant you can grow in your home, but it does need like a piece, you know, like a piece of bark or something to sit on. Um, so, you know, if you don't necessarily want a piece of bark in your home, maybe it's not for you, but it's pretty cool. You can spray mist it to water it. So. And so it doesn't have to be anchored to something alive? No. Okay. Uh, it just needs that, yeah. That, that back. Other ferns, like kind of culturally important ferns, are the silver fern, which you may have heard of, and I had to include because of my love of rugby. <laughs> okay, curious how they connect. <laughs> Um, the silver fern is native to New Zealand, and it's also known as ponga, which is the Maori word for it, so the tribal peoples of New Zealand. Um, it's a medium-sized, scaly fern, so not a hairy fern. There are hairy ferns and scaly ferns, um, and they have trunks that are about 10 meters tall, so about 33 feet. They're very large ferns. Um, the underside of them is like a silver or a white. Uh, and it used to be used by people to kind of lead them through the night because it would reflect the moonlight. Hmm. Um, so oftentimes people in these tribes would take some of the leaves down and put them face up or upside down so that you, the light would be reflected off of them. Um, they believe that the fern stood for strength and stubborn resistance and enduring power. And it did provide like nourishment and healing for them. So it was used in some very basic, you know, food and medicinal ways. Um, and according to their legends, it once lived in the sea and was asked to come on land to guide them. That's kind of their, their thing. Mm -hmm. Um. There are similar species found in Australia um, and in a couple surrounding areas, but they primarily are native to northern uh, New Zealand. Uh, since the 1880s, it's been a symbol of the country and of the National Rugby League. Gotcha. And so if you see that little logo, you'll see it's like a little fern and then it says all blacks. I felt I needed to include that. Yeah. <laughs> For my own self. And it's a good cultural example of ferns. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's just so many ferns. That's the problem. Yeah, this is the biggest, well, I guess one of the biggest families that we've talked about so far. Yeah. 
um, you know, maiden hair ferns are an incredibly popular but finicky houseplant. They're beautiful because they're delicate. They're this very light green color. The leaves are very like thin, um, but they're well known for dying incredibly easily. And it's because they do like to have kind of a high humidity. Um, they're often outdoors near like stream banks or in very damp shaded areas. Although you can find them, you know, in a lot of places, especially in the United States. Um, it's been used in some Native American basket makers, baskets, as kind of like a decorative thread almost because they have very long, dark, dark brown or basically black stems that are very, they're, they're thin, but they're almost like that same uh, thickness, I guess, of like a thick plastic thread, you would almost think, but uh, so they are used sometimes in that way to decorate certain works and stuff like that. Um, they do have a covering that allows them to be somewhat water repellent, which helps them prevent rot, but they need very high humidity to survive. Um, and they have also kind of had medicinal purposes in the past, which I think is kind of part of why they've come into our collective consciousness. Uh, in the 16th century, they were used to relieve asthma and snake bites and coughs. Um, it was also known to be a little bit of a stimulant. And so people use it to treat like bronchitis and sore throats and whooping cough. Um, and it's also been used Oddly enough, as a hair restorer for hair loss, I found a lot about that in the past for some reason, like maybe like to stimulate the scalp, I guess. Like specifically the maiden hair fern? Yeah. Hmm. Like maybe they like chew it up and then they paste it on their head. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why it's called a maiden hair, but it's true. I found a lot of that. Um... And like I said, the species primarily North American, although they are found in some other European and Asian countries. And um, these are maidenhair ferns, which are the small bushy ones, but there's also something called a maidenhair tree, which is another name for the um, ginkgo bilbo, or bilbo plant. Ginkgo biloba plant. So you can't confuse the two. Because they're very different. <laughs> but, you know, if you were just reading about it, the maid, there's also the maidenhair tree, which is, it's a much bigger plant, it's a tree. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, speaking of things that we might ingest, one of the other kind of popular ferns is the ostrich fern, which is the original fiddlehead fern. And... Some people know this, some people don't, but fiddleheads are actually eaten like vegetables. So they're these very like curly, thick, fleshy parts of a fern. And it's really the ostrich fern. In early spring, the heads look like 
the head of a fiddle and it's kind of before the whole leaf has unfurled. Uh, and oftentimes during this early springtime, they're cut and eaten like a vegetable. So they're said to be sweet like asparagus, grassy and snappy like a green bean with a little bit of a broccoli taste. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, that could be good. Um, it's already rolled up. And their spores are actually born, born on a separate frond than their regular foliage. So you're not even really eating the spores, you're just eating the actual, you know, showy leaves that kind of protect those. So they can still reproduce. Exactly. Um, and then most grow, even the even though they do have the spores, most of them actually grow from rhizomes. So we talked about rhizomes before a little bit with begonias, where the roots will shoot out horizontally and grow another plant from that root, and then... As the host plant dies, a new plant grows. Um, they are native to the northern hemisphere. This is most popularly eaten in Canada and the northeast United States, so where we live. Up here in Boston and Maine, that's where kind of it's the most popular. And the leaves, if they're allowed to kind of totally unfurl, are about four to five feet tall. They're huge, giant leaves. Um, which is why they're called the ostrich fern. It's kind of like large ostrich feather size. Um, and they're typically bright green throughout spring and summer. And then they turn like a light golden color in the fall before eventually, you know, succumbing to winter. So are these typically annuals? And then they'll just like reproduce? spores or rhizomes every year um i do think that the plants can live more than one year potentially but they do have like the annual cycle like once a year they and and then you know they do reproduce and then but uh and with rhizome producing too like sometimes being connected with more than one plant can lengthen the time and then probably like one of the most iconic ferns is the Boston fern, which is very popular in the home plant. It's like the quintessential Victorian era plant. Like every home had a hanging Boston fern in their parlor window. Yeah, and that was the thing. That meant you were smart. Yeah. <laughs> um, they do well in hanging baskets and things like that. But they do want high humidity, so they're a plant that likes to be sprayed. You know, they prefer warmer places. They like bright light. Um, but it was one of the most popular ferns because it was known for, like, its quote-unquote easy care compl compared to some other ferns, which can be a little bit more finicky. Um, and its exotic appearance. You know, when we do say we think of, like, dinosaurs and stuff when you know when we think of that that like classic ladder fern structure seems so basic that it's almost like primal to us i think um it has you know kind of these like cascading green fawns it's got this like wild appearance to it a little bit um older leaves turn brown can set them off without harming the plants 
that's kind of how it keeps going. It's like old leaves die, new ones come, and you do kind of have to prune it compared to some other plants. Um, Boston ferns actually don't have viable spores, although they do have spores. Um, so they do have to be propagated by either divisions of the host plant or um, rooting runners. So are Boston ferns like sterile? I mean, they're not technically sterile because they can reproduce. They just don't reproduce via spores. Which is funny because so many ferns do, but the most popular one doesn't. And I think that's part of why it's a little bit hardier as well. You know, it just keeps going. <laughs> it doesn't have to depend on the spores, you know. To keep reproducing. To keep reproducing, yeah. Um, basically, the reason that the Boston fern is called the Boston fern is because a variant of sword fern, which is its own group of ferns uh, was found in a shipment of plants between Philadelphia and Boston and then propagated here by a local distributor and so now it is known as the Boston fern although there is a group of sword ferns um but once yeah. again I think that's good marketing <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I mean this was what I know about ferns What's your uh, mini tip? Mini tip. Um, I would say if you're going to get a fern and it's possible, try to look up where it comes from. And I know we've talked a lot about that already, kind of. But with ferns specifically, where it comes from is going to give you the best idea of how to care for it. You know, some subtropical ferns don't need as much light as tropical ferns. Most of the ones that you get are probably going to be more terrestrial, so you want to avoid root rot, but some plants like higher humidity. Some plants want to dry out a little bit. You know, there's like the rabbit foot fern, which has this really cute little like uh, fuzzy little hairy thingy that looks kind of like a rabbit foot that all of the little fronds come from. And those are really cute and they're a little less susceptible to root rot than some other ferns that I've had. But you know, if you get like an asparagus fern, asparagus ferns, you know, can't be crazy over water. They might even like to dry out a little bit. So there's just knowing what type of fern you have is the best way that you have to keep it alive. And you should keep in mind that most of them want high humidity and don't want to get bone dry like succulents. This is the plant for people who like plants, <laughs> who are into caring for their plants. If you're an overcarer, ferns are for you. And my suggestion is to put a little figurine of a dinosaur in there so that you can <laughs> <laughs> What do we have to look forward to for next week? Next week, we're going to be talking about pileas and pepperomias. That sounds like a pizza order. It kind of does, yeah. <laughs> well, I look forward to learning again with you next week. 